Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Kristen Tiesch. I had the pleasure of attending Sundance 2019 with Wildlands as they premiered Sea of Shadows, a feature documentary about the extinction of the Vaquita porpoise in the Sea of Cortez, Mexico. My goal for producing this podcast while I was at the festival was to talk to as many people as I could about the responsibility of filmmakers to talk about environmental justice issues during this era where so much is at stake. I hope you enjoy listening to some of the voices of the people that I spoke with. And speaking of voices, the music you're listening to right now is from the new album by Shake Your Peace, and you'll be meeting the band leader a little bit later on in this podcast. So let's dive right in. Welcome to A Day in the Life of Sundance 2019. Standing circled with the Park City, Utah. This is Kristen Tiesch reporting from Sundance Film Festival 2019. The skies are blue. There's snow on the ground. It's cold, but it's beautiful. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here. There are several barriers, of course, to get into this level of film festival. So myself as a female filmmaker and Serena Simons as a woman of color filmmaker, we are very concerned with how the festival is dealing with diversity and how the festival is providing opportunities for all different kinds of voices. Filmmaking is such a powerful medium to change minds and change hearts and change society. We care very deeply about the voices that are being represented and being uplifted by film festivals like Sundance. How do we look at today's narrative through an intersectional perspective. We're very excited about learning how to better break down the barriers for different kinds of voices, and especially in the field of environmental filmmaking, which tends to be a very white male-dominated genre of film. So how do we incorporate the different voices? How do we incorporate more women and people of color? And how do we uplift the themes of social justice through our storytelling? I was just walking up Main Street here and I saw this woman holding up a sign. And I'd like her to tell me who she is and a little bit about the sign. My name is Cassandra Begay. I'm from the Navajo tribe, which is the largest Native American tribe in the United States. And I'm here at Sundance to bring awareness to the injustice that's been suppressing one of our indigenous leaders, Willie Gray Eyes. He is one of the lead grassroots activists on the Bears Ears National Monument. He was the head of the board of directors for the grassroots organization nonprofit Utah Denebikea. And he's been a community organizer for many years, not only on the Navajo Nation, but in the Utah community. And recently he won a commission seat in San Juan County, Utah. And this is important because there was a narrative out there by the Trump administration, the former Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke, that 
the Bears Ears National Monument was not wanted by the local folks and they subsequently reduced the National Monument by more than 80%. It was a huge threat, a violation to their tribal sovereignty and the community there in San Juan County, Utah, where the Bears Ears National Monument is located, general population is majority Native American and so they've been battling a lot of social injustices and human rights violations. They have been gerrymandering the Native American voice. In fact, uh, in 2017, a federal court judge ruled that the county was racial gerrymandering and ordered the county to redraw the districting lines, which shifted the power to the Native Americans rightfully so. So this year, for the first time in history, the election there was constitutional. It's the first election where there's a Native American majority and it's the first election where now with the Native American majority representation that resources will be distributed equally to the Native Americans in the community. And that's the first time that this has happened in decades. So what's happened with uh, this particular candidate, Indigenous leader, Willie Gray Eyes, is that his human rights have been violated in many different ways. Fellow community members coming forward saying he's not from the county when he's provided more than 20 years of voting history in the county. And culturally, his umbilical cord is buried there, which is a huge significance to the Navajo people, which essentially determines your birthplace, and that's what distinguishes where you're from. It's important to protect these sacred items for ancestral remains because it tells the story about the human beings that we are. And it's important to listen to the first peoples of this country because no one knows this land better than we do. And I think that a lot of times communities are doing themselves a disservice by not having indigenous people at the table making the decision, which was really important about the Bears National Monument. It was the first national monument that five tribes asked for. And it's the first time that a president acknowledged through that proclamation with President Obama and honored their sovereignty. Many people are interested in what indigenous leadership looks like. A lot of indigenous leadership has the solutions to what we need in terms of combating global warming, in terms of climate justice. Here in the West, many indigenous leaders are organizing and they are really fighting back for their rights and the protection of their ancestral lands. And so with Willie Gray Eyes, he's been attacked in multiple fronts from Mormon, LDS, politicians here, and even the Trump administration. He not only was told that he wasn't from this country, essentially, but that he didn't deserve to, to have a seat at the table. I think it's time to turn the tables, and I think it's time to come together in friendship, and I think that's what Willie Gray Eyes wants to do. He wants to bring healing to the community, figure out solutions on how we can have better relations with each other, better relations with our environment, because ultimately that's how you judge a civilization. You don't judge a civilization by how tall its buildings are. You judge a civilization by how well we relate to each other and how well we relate to our environment, and I think that's what Willie Gray Eyes is about. How many people who walk by understand why you're out here raising awareness. There's been Utah residents that have commended me for bringing awareness to Willie Grise because they are familiar. This has been a huge issue in Utah. A lot of times people come to Utah because of our public lands, because we love this landscape and we enjoy this landscape and this landscape brings a lot of healing. However, Utah politicians don't always treat our public lands well. We can create jobs, and we can protect our ancestral lands, and we can stimulate the economy by doing campaigns around public lands and protecting that. 
a lot of times indigenous leadership is interested in making decisions today that not only affect today and tomorrow or this year, but eight generations from now. I personally am interested in what that looks like because I've seen white male patriarchal leadership for so long, my whole life. It's time to rally the American people to get behind tribes and indigenous leadership. I agree. We're here during Sundance Film Festival, and people come from all over the world to attend. How is Sundance doing in terms of representing and including the indigenous voice? How accessible is this festival as a platform for the native peoples of Utah? You know, a lot of times 90% of out there what's in the media is filtered by mostly white people. And so I think that Sundance Film Festival tries to put forth some effort and some energy into elevating indigenous artists. And I think that's so crucially needed because a lot of times our voices are being silenced, whether it's through not giving us a platform at places like this. Indigenous artists appreciate that there is an effort. But I always think that with the amount of resources that they have, they can always do more. I think it would be great for the Sundance Film Festival to acknowledge that they are in Ute ancestral lands, that they are in Ute territory. I think that if they would just make a statement about that and acknowledge that and honor that and respect that and build more relations with the indigenous communities, not only locally and nationally, but internationally, it could be a really beneficial, positive thing. I'm here at the Female Quotient, and I just observed an incredible panel. I also had the pleasure of sitting next to Makiko James, who is in Women in Film. Makiko, could you tell me a little bit about what drew you to this panel? So the panelists were Gurinder Chadha and Reggie Watts. They both changed my life in creative ways. I think they're incredibly talented people that I've followed for decades. It's really refreshing to see the trajectory of their careers and then also maintain voices within the space of being visionaries who are not white men. <laughs> They've really worked so hard to advance messages about inclusion without being so overt about it, being honest about the stories and narratives of people who don't look like the quote-unquote majority. Women's stories shouldn't be relegated to women's stories. Women's stories are human stories. Women's stories are universal. We are over 50% of the world population. We should just have parity in the voice that we have in the media narrative. So this panel really spoke eloquently to that. Speaking about honesty, one of the things that Reggie said was, I need the honesty in terms of honest stories being more important to them and viewers, you know, like us, than technical excellence that a lot of filmmakers depend on. So uh, what, what was your reaction to that part of the discussion? It's a double-edged sword, right? I think what we hear a lot in our field of advocacy and research is that, you know, women don't want to do tentpole movies. They don't want to do superhero films because they don't want to do the big budgets of effects and, and, you know, practicals and things like that. It's not either or. I think honesty can exist in all forms of the media, big budget, low budget. But I do think what's true is story is always queen, right? And to discount any which type of media as, you know, not commercial or not viable is is the problem. I think I'm a fan of like really character-driven narrative and someone, some people say, well, those are like more feminine type films. I'm like, no, we absolutely need both and it needs to live at the intersection of both being visually stimulating and really speaking to truth. And I think we really have to grapple with like, what is it that we're creating? Is it just a commodity that's like lots of explosions and superheroes or is it narrative that 
tells the gamut of the human experience. These two creators gave definitions of what diversity meant to them, and I jotted down the chance to tell stories from our perspective. We want these stories because they're our stories, and it's commercially viable to make films from these perspectives, but they need champions from Hollywood. What do you think Hollywood and also festivals like Sundance are doing to financially uplift stories that are diverse, that are from different perspectives. We are almost close to parity for the female filmmakers that are represented here, as well as being uh, very intentionally international, which I think is incredibly important. So Trey Williams was the moderator of this panel, African-American. We need the voice of all those who would grant visibility, like critics, like press outlets, marketing teams, uh, distributors to also be thinking about these things. And everyone's here at Sundance having a good time making deals, talking to each other. That has to be the undercurrent of everything we do. And it's not yet. I don't think it's seeped into the closed-door business deal part of the industry, even though it's a lot of chatter in the public space. For women in film, I think our hope is to continue to talk to people about how do you not only uplift women creators, but women executives and decision makers and greenlighters. How do you make sure that women have access to capital? With the number of influential people that are right here in Park City right now, it just has to be in the conversation. And people have to be called out when it's not in the conversation. One of the things that they uh, discussed on this panel was a future in which a panel on diversity would be three white men, you know, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny because it's hard to imagine that, right? Well, what if we get to this new state of parody? Like, to you, what do you think that storytelling will look like and sound like? How do we imagine this new narrative told by the minority voices? And it's such an important question, and visioning is something I've been talking about a lot in my organization and with friends who are creators, as well as in political work, because as we find ourselves in a tumultuous political time, we're resisting so much, as opposed to creating, because it takes a lot of bandwidth to do both simultaneously. But I, and while I appreciate the comedy of like it being three white guys on the next time we have to do a diversity panel, I think that the myth we have to dismantle is a, that it's a zero-sum game. The narrative we want to create is that there is enough for all of us to be creating. We are not com competitors because we come from different cultural backgrounds or gender backgrounds. That's not the point. The point is that thus far, the structure has supported one type of person for a very long time. There is enough for all of us to have the opportunity to make story. And whether it's not it's like lucrative careers, whether or not we can all get rich, of course, maybe less viable, but maybe the objective shouldn't be to become rich. Maybe it should just be to make movies. <laughs> and how do we actually create a system and an industry in which the commercial viability isn't the only bottom line? And we are seeing more and more from all different walks of life. But right now what's getting dictated is that because it's not going to make enough money, you're not going to be heard. And we have to really shift that to like, no, everyone deserves to be heard and there is enough to go around in which everyone has the opportunity to make something. I'm here with Poonam and Esther from Team Revolution Films and we just attended a very inspiring panel put on by women in film about gender parity and you both have just recently started your own production company and if you could just tell me a little bit about why you started your company and the mission behind it. So Esther and I are both actors by trade and we wanted to start a company that was really female driven and tell these stories by 
not just women, but underrepresented voices that don't necessarily always get heard and, and get a platform. And we feel like we're uniquely positioned to tell these stories that aren't really getting told. So we thought, let's empower ourselves and start telling the stories that we think need a platform. We felt that since we're both actors, the roles that we were going out for, the roles that we often were getting cast in, weren't really representing us in the way that we wanted to be represented. And so we're really interested in having, like Poonam was saying, very female-driven stories, and also LGBTQ, really intersectional. Uh, intersectional, Yeah, is very important. And not only represented in our casts, but also in our crew. So it's really great that you brought up the question of crew, because I think it was Nisha who said that when you hire a female line producer, you're going to end up having more female crew members. There's the kind of conscious hiring of female crew and everything, and then there's kind of the unconscious idea, which is what she was bringing up. Like, if you hire a line producer, you automatically kind of get more women on the on the roster. So it's interesting how it works kind of both ways, like the top-down, trickle-down kind of thing, but also like there's an important factor of being conscious, being deliberate about hiring who you want to hire and giving people an opportunity. One of the things that I picked up on during the panel was, and this is something that we were also just bringing up in the bathroom too, when <laughs> the, the women's restroom where, where all the important conversations take place. When a line producer, for example, is going through resumes and sees that there might be a, a female applicant um, but she may not have the same technical ability as somebody else who's competing for the same job, but she makes a decision to hire somebody because they have something else to contribute. In your words, what would you say would be that something else that uh, a, a woman or a woman of color could contribute to a production? There's probably three things. One, it's like you want to look for someone who has a vision, a voice of their own, someone who can be creative with resources. That's one thing that Nisha mentioned that I thought was so brilliant, which is that you may look at a reel from a woman and it's like doesn't look as impressive right off the bat, but then you think about what was she working with? And she gave the example of this this woman who the lighting seemed a little off in her in her cinematography and then she asked her about it and it turns out she only had two pieces of equipment that she was working with and she made this brilliant piece and if she hadn't have asked her it would have not compared to someone else maybe possibly a man who had lots like an entire gaffing crew and things like that and you can't compare those two unless you ask the question and so in that comparison she's more impressive that she was able to have this beautiful film with just two pieces of equipment and so and weren't those pieces of equipment like a reflector and some tinfoil or something it was it was a bounce and and tinfoil yeah Yeah. Well, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. Yes, yes, I love it. So, last question. What do you think that the shift will be in the way that stories are told with the inclusion of new voices? The stories have always been there. The storytellers, we've always been there. And now it's about getting the exposure that's needed and getting the support that's needed. Women, women of color, people of color, LGBTQ, people with disabilities. These films, these people, all of us, we've always been here. We've always been creating this content. And now I'm hoping with diversity incentives that it's just going to become more visible because we've always been here. I just saw a documentary by some filmmakers from Macedonia called Honeyland. So I would love to hear from the filmmakers. If you could please introduce yourself and tell me the role that you played on the film first. I'm Tamara Kotevska from Macedonia. I'm one of the directors of the film. 
Hello, I'm uh, Lyubo Stefanov, the co-director of uh, Honeyland. So first of all, when I was watching the film, at first I was like, oh, this is a documentary. And then I said to myself, wait a minute, this seems like a narrative. The characters are so strong, and there's such a strong narrative arc in this film. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to craft the story? I believe that in everyone's life uh, there's this kind of simple narrative story that if you're patient enough you will capture. We didn't influence their lives. We were patient enough and uh, persistent enough to be long enough with them so we can get everything we need to create this uh, film to get the natural uh, reactions of, of this protagonist. We can say that we influenced the chronological order later in editing. For example, the conflict was shot first and the friendship moments were shot later after we spent some time with them and after they became friends. But uh, in the editing, we realized that it's better for the narrative of this film to start with the friendship and go into the conflict. So the only influence we did was actually in the chronological order of events. The main character, Atije, is a beekeeper, and she has a very traditional way of keeping bees. And then in the film, these neighbors moved in, and then they had a little bit more of a mass production way of, of keeping bees and producing honey. There is a strong environmental message to this film, both with the story of the bees, but also with the way that the main characters took care of the land. Actually, the story is not about bees. If you, are, uh, if you are looking from environmental point of view. For us, it is uh, larger, and uh, the, the main environmental point in the film is actually the principle of equal share of benefits between user, which, is, uh, which are humans, Atija in this case, and provider, nature, uh, the beast in this, in this case, in order to uh, ensure food security. Take half, leave half, half to the providers, to the bees. Uh, this film is a universal example of what it means to break this rule. So it's a small, uh, like a microcosmos, we can say, over there, but it's an image of how the whole world functions and how big catastrophes happen, just like here in this very small place. It's on the same rule. If you break this rule... With nature, this is what happens. Overusing of uh, natural resources, more than you need. This is your first time at Sundance, so what is your feeling so far? How have you been received? How do you enjoy the audiences here? I think we're still not aware what is happening because this is like a hurricane that took us and it's still lasting. One thing we cannot believe still and we are the most grateful and amazed is the audience reactions because... This is the real evidence of how this film influences and touches the hearts of the people universally because it speaks to these people one continent away from us the same way as it speaks to the people back home. And this is the most important thing we have accomplished. What do you think is the responsibility during an era of climate change and massive environmental shift? What is the responsibility as storytellers to share these stories about restoring the balance between humans and nature? It's absolutely big responsibility. That's why we are doing these films. I think it's the only responsibility that a filmmaker has to share these kind of stories. 
I just finished watching a remarkable film called Lapu about an indigenous woman in Colombia, and I'm here with the directors Juan Pablo and Cesar. First of all, can you just tell me a little bit about the film? It's a journey in order to reflect on our relationship with death and throughout the way Dottie's, the main character, relates with that. And during the film, she, she's traveling to her cousin's tomb in order to exhume her and clean her bones, which is a very important ritual in her culture. And it's a very beautiful way to uh, confront death and memory. Yeah, and this film is not trying to make like a step-by-step -step of the ritual, but instead like more in an emotional way. From the Q&A, a lot of people were moved very deeply by this experience and the way that you captured it as well. One of the comments from the audience was about the longing that we as humans feel because of the fact that so many of us that live on this planet are disconnected from our ancestral cultures. We're losing this important way of seeing that we are always trying to hide that. We are always having like a very cold relationship with that, trying to hide it in hospitals. So I think it's very important to, to, to face that again because the way you think about death, it will be the way you think about life. Regarding the ancestors, and it's, it's, I think, taking care of the dead ones, it's a relationship with like, your past and your roots. For example, what you people are, have a very uh, strong feeling to their land, because there's where their dead are buried. That connection with land and to a roots is something we've lost, and they have kept that relationship throughout these kind of rituals like taking care of the past and our ancestors and making that questions about the not written history that we, many uh, others have erased. It's a way also to understanding our future. In a way, taking care of, of that roots is taking care of how we develop as cultures. So the Waju tribe, Doris is the main character, and her tribe is an indigenous tribe that does not appear to be colonized, you know, in the way that other cultures have lost that connection. Can you talk a little bit about the strength of that culture and how important it is to share these old cultures with the world through film? The Waju tribe are one of the most biggest indigenous groups in Latin America. It's one of the biggest in Colombia and Venezuela. And they have really made a struggle throughout their history to keep their beliefs even though nowadays there's already a mixture, you saw it on the film, with Christianity and lots of beliefs that come from outside. It's amazing how still nowadays it's possible to really be out the frame of this globalized culture we've made. A lot of the scenes in this film were very private and intimate. Often I felt a little uncomfortable that I was seeing something that I maybe shouldn't have been seeing. How difficult was it to gain access and trust to film those scenes? And what would you say to audience members like me who felt a little uncomfortable? I think it's all about relations, human relations, because that's cinema, and, and the creative relation with the, with the characters. We were not there like filming and making something about them, but we were creating something together. We shared the same doubts 
and we had the same questions and for Doris making this ritual was a way of giving answers to those questions. As for us, making this film was the process to giving answers to the same questions we shared with with Doris. I would like to ask you, which scene did, did you feel like of Court of, of... For me, it was definitely the scene where she had to exhume the body. Like At times it was like, ooh, I felt like this is really personal and, you know, should I, as a Westerner or a white person, you know, should I be watching this? Is this a ritual that I should be invited to watch? For us, when, when we were there, we also felt uncomfortable in a way... What was happening there was really deep and difficult for us and Doris and everyone. But I think part of the beauty of it is that for all there was something hard to do, but we were all together struggling to going through that. That, that feeling of community and doing this as a family together and going through this struggle together I think that's one of the most valuable things to the on the ritual. It's trying to make that like uncomfortable might be or scary feeling about death and that very private moment. The film tries to like make that something that brings power and like makes bonds between people. Going through that kind of difficult process. There was another scene that made me feel uncomfortable. So I'm a vegetarian, right? <laughs> So all of the scenes with cows meeting the end of their life end up being uncomfortable for me to watch. But as we speak about this and the discomfort that we often feel when faced with death, um, it reminds me that that scene was really quite different because it was mostly men with the cow that was about to be slaughtered. And there wasn't this outpour of emotion that was happening during the scene with Doris at the cemetery. Would either of you like to comment on the contrast between those two scenes? That moment with the cow, it's a way of experiencing death. And for us, having the time to be with that feeling, and that's the reason that seemed to be there. Death of a cow is something that's really natural in many ways, and in that context, but it was not like charged with all those taboo things we have about it. Has Doris seen the film and her community, and what is their response? Yes, she has seen the film. Her family haven't seen the film yet. I feel she's got a very different relationship with the film than us do in many senses now that it's finished. For her, I think the most important thing, it's her relationship with memories and her family. It's like seeing a family album. Even though it's a hard event... It's, it's actually a very important event, an event to be proud of. It's supposed to be the most important event in their life. It's, it's a celebration at the end. It's a meeting with family. So they have another read on it. So, uh, yes, for Doris, it's like watching her aunt again. And, and when she saw the exclamation, she was really sad. She cried a little bit. It was like going through that again. Congratulations again on getting into Sundance. This must be exciting for you. How have the audiences received your film? It's beautiful to see how this film that is in a very particular region of Colombia can connect with uh, people from other different, really different contexts. And I think it's because we all have something in common that is that we are going to die. And death is a very important question that we must share.
Here I am on busy Main Street in front of the Egyptian, and I just got out of watching the stunning documentary Anthropocene. And I'm here with a fellow filmmaker and who also has a film in the festival in the U.S. dramatic competition. But he's here to see an environmental film. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are and your film, and what drew you to come see this film today? My name is Dan Madison Savage, and I'm the co-writer and co-director of Them That Follow, a film that explores an unseen, very misunderstood way of life, which is Pentecostal snake handling. And it does so through the lens of a young woman who is wrestling with doubts. Somebody was telling me about the snake handling film, and I was like, a snake handling film? So now I've met the director, now I want to see your film. What was it that drew you, a dramatic filmmaker, to come see a film about the human impact on the planet. There are a lot of environmental themes in the film that I made. Pentecostal snake handlers have a very close relationship to the natural world, a religious experience with the natural world, and an extraordinary reverence of nature because of that. And so there's a lot of that same reverence in our film uh, as we're trying to be empathetic with them. I think it just comes from my own values as an environmentalist and as a person that's deeply, deeply concerned for the state of the natural world. So this is actually, Anthropocene is the very first film that I've seen outside of my own at the festival. I've been so busy. This is the first few hours that I've had, and I wanted to come see a film that felt like it's one of the most dire and important signals in one of the most impactful world forums, the Sundance Film Festival. Having just watched this film, I walked out feeling a little depressed, I have to admit. It's really hard to see the damage that humans have done to the planet and also to know how complicit I am in it. The palladium mines, for instance, in northern Russia, the director mentioned that this is a mineral that goes into all of our cell phones. What was your reaction? It was a horror film. There is an extraordinary amount of terror sitting in in a theater, no matter how exquisitely composed and gorgeous some of these images actually are because human beings are inherently creative. We make movies, we dig mines, we dig mines in order to make movies. And seeing the complexity of our human civilization laid bare and seeing the wounds that we've inflicted upon the planet at such a massive scale, it gives you chills, it makes you feel a little hopeless. But I also, as I was watching these extraordinary machines dig into a mountain, I, I began to feel some hope because if we can bulldoze a mountain, surely we can address the issues of climate change. I'm praying. Anthropocene scared me. It really shook me as to the scale. So very often when we hear and talk about climate change, the effects are really hard. We can feel them. We see them on the news. But the images in this film, the lithium pools and the deserts in South America, you see a scale to our human civilization that, that, that can be really hard to read or quantify in any way. And it's the only sort of thing that images can capture. And that's why movies and television are such an essential medium for sending out these, these dire signals. As a storyteller, what do you think our responsibility is, you know, during this era to include environmental themes in all of our storytelling? Do we, do we as artists have that responsibility on us? 
the story of climate change is, is the story of the moment. You know, this is the great battle of our time. I believe Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that, that this is our World War II. And when I heard that, it gave me chills because I, I heard so much truth in it. But I have to be hopeful. I think we all have to be hopeful because that's why we're here on this earth, you know, is to have optimism. And then what do you think about festivals like Sundance, which are festivals on that global scale? Do festivals like Sundance also carry a responsibility to share environmental content? And how do you think that they're doing this year? I personally do think it's a responsibility for film festivals to include this theme. And in particular, because of the disparate effects of climate change, where we know that the people who are going to suffer most are often the poorest of the poor, uh, often people of color in developing countries. In order to tell an inclusive story, an inclusive lens into the world that we live in, which we are in a world festival right now, I think it is essential to tell that story. And I would really, really love to see stories from filmmakers across the world who are beginning to feel these effects and, and I really hope we start seeing those because I believe in the powers of stories to change people's hearts and minds. And so I'm really, really glad that Sundance included this and I'd recommend it to anyone. And then one more film recommendation. Can you tell viewers how to find out about your film? Yes, my film was acquired by The Orchard, so it will be in North America hopefully this summer. Congratulations! Thank you. It's a, it's a dream come true to be here and also such an education to be able to... Leave yourself behind in, in, in your own mind and your own concerns about what's going to happen to your movie at Sundance and to, to really put things in perspective, and, and this film did that. Stage at the ASCAP Music Cafe, and I ran into my friend from the Bay Area, musician Gabe Dominguez, and he came prepared. So, <laughs> Gabe, can you tell me what <laughs> what's going on today and what you're doing here? Yeah, I'm I'm here because I am releasing an album called What Music, and I am gonna try to encounter musicians and people that I admire and see if they would be willing to give the album a listen. And then if they are inspired to give me a positive blurb, basically advanced critical praise, so that with that I can possibly maybe stand a chance of getting past the gatekeepers of the media and see if they'd give me the album a listen and give it a spin and then hopefully a review, hopefully a positive review. And right now we're, we're backstage of the ass, at the ASCAP and Florida Toloache is probably going to be coming out pretty soon and then followed by Nephew. I have zero expectations that they're going to listen to it, but you never know. There's lots of movers and shakers here this week. And as a musician who makes music that has a social justice message, an environmental justice message, this is an opportunity for you. How do you feel about the access that's provided? I mean, I know we're, we're kind of sneaking in the back door here and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you live in Salt Lake City. You're a musician. It's not like you have a lot of money to buy a credential to come in and meet people. Right. 
So we're doing it an alternative way. Yeah. What would you say to that aspect of Sundance, like the accessibility to all types of people? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm sh- I think that it reflects the arts in general seem to not be very accessible to people who are poor and who are working all the time. And I lament that. On the other hand, I also think Sundance does make an effort. I noticed their effort when I went on their website to include locals and make it easier for locals to enjoy the films and stuff, so I think that's cool. But I often think about people who just don't have the time and money. They are struggling, supporting their family. They don't have time to get out and see films that are hard to get to, cost them a lot of money. So I think it would be cool to have like a almost like a mirror Sundance in Rose Park in the West Valley of Salt Lake and show the films at community centers there and like have Lexus or you know whoever chase Sapphire these you know giant displays and awnings that they're putting up on Main Street and Park City like any any of these companies and the money that they're giving to the festival or to the city if that could fund this mirror effort I'm talking about just to share some of these rad films with people and make it really easy for people who have it really hard especially kids especially like high school kids i feel like it's our responsibility as an arts community to be more radical than everyone else in terms of evening the playing field and evening accessibility so so let me ask you another question i mean you are here with your new cd for shake your peace and this is a band that i know about but maybe you know some people listening to this podcast might not know who Shake Your Pieces, and what you stand for. And if you could also talk a little bit about the responsibility that artists have to communicate messages of environmental and social justice. I think that artists don't necessarily have more of a responsibility than anybody else to communicate messages of environmental and social justice. However, I always appreciate any individual and any artist who does. My wife, Sonia, is a, is a songwriter, too. We often talk about the mythical polar bear song, which is the holy grail of, of songs where you can actually take one of these cliche images of climate apocalypse and turn it into something emotionally devastating. Make it as devastating emotionally as it is in reality. C- create that somehow magically through music because it's so difficult to address themes of justice in music without sounding cliche and, you know, A for effort, but it's just not going to be as moving as a song about heartbreak and love or something like that. So I think it's, I think it's very challenging. I appreciate when people do it, but I don't think artists have more of a responsibility than anybody else. As citizens, as humans, as animals on the planet, we have a responsibility to stand up for what's right. But accepting the paradigm of there are artists and then there are non-artists, do artists have more of a responsibility? I would say no. Artists have a power to change people's minds is this something that you hope will will be an impact of your new album yeah i would hope to change lots of minds yeah can you tell me a little bit about the theme the theme of your new album yes the theme of the new album i would call it it's called it's called whoop music and it features a style of music called whoop which is uh, a rock and roll hybridization of uh, afro-latin and caribbean rhythms bluegrass fiddle gospel choir marching band percussion and ecotopian perspectives, and I've tried to make it mostly very danceable and joyful so that there is a lot of spoonfuls of sugar with the medicine, and hopefully making my best attempt at trying to write the impossible polar bear song. In this era where there's a lot of doom and gloom, talk about climate catastrophe and all that, what do you say is like the importance of 
positive messaging. Well, my dad was saying the other night, I feel like the youth are starting to get hip to this idea of, like, we want to fight, but we want to party, too. I think that there's a common uh, hunger. On, Do you need to run off? <laughs> on the part of Flor de Toloache is walking by, so we're just... They look really great in their outfits. Fantastic. So good. I personally, when I see, like, T-Rump did this, T-Rump did that, I'm kind of like, oh, man, I don't... It's like waking up in the morning and, like, someone, like, throwing you in an ice bath, you know? It's just like, I'd rather avoid Like, I know the guy's a racist. I know he's trying to, like, become the biggest fascist in the world, you know? I think a lot of people are exhausted by all that and are looking for more positive outlets for their activism and their hope and their and their vision for a better world. So I think there's a lot of artists who are making our best attempts to meet that need and try to try to help fan the flames of excitement and joy and vision and all the positive aspects of the ecotopian struggle because there's so much of hearing the bad news and getting arrested and struggling and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's important for us to to create party music and, and opportunities for creating community. We're humans and we need we need all of it. We need love and friendship and music. It's all and dancing is I mean what's the use of laying down on a bridge if you can't dance on the bridge? Mm. You know, when at the Ecotopian Independence Day fireworks celebration after we win this thing, you know? So, <laughs> you know, and of course, this is like, you know, a theatrical idea, imaginative idea, but I like talking in those terms because it helps us just have more sparkle in our eye when we're, when we're not quite at that fireworks display yet. We're at the getting arrested part, and maybe it will always be the getting arrested part, but I'm so deeply moved seeing... South African struggle or the civil rights struggle in our country and this as pe- people singing while they were in jail mm-hmm. together and how 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 inc- incredibly spiritually edifying it is to sing with other people to to harmonize your freedom together mm-hmm. I mean it's almost like they can't take there's they can't arrest that so I want to wish you luck in getting your your new CD out to some important influential people who will help raise the volume on your message. Thanks, Kristen. Appreciate it. Yesterday their time was up, not going left and lying down. Sea level got sent to rise up. You say 2050, blah, blah, blah. We'll pass a lot, blah, blah. Enough. Our patience and our skies are fire. Now our people wise up that the wilderness is not for purchase. The will of God is not the churches. The wilderness is not for purchase. I just finished probably the most powerful panel that I've seen yet at Sundance. It was called The Road to Decolonization. During the Q&A, this woman eloquently and passionately and emotionally shared her feelings about what she just heard. Joe, you mentioned that you are passionate about climate change, and then you are also a woman of color, and you shared your experience. First, just right off the bat, what did you think of this panel discussion you know what what bubbled up oh thank you so much Kristen, for having a moment with me and um, for also being in space all together to share these dialogues important dialogues and conversations that I feel personally need to continue happening like on a wide mainstream level a lot of these panelists address how it can be very challenging to speak about issues such as racism decolonization um, resources extraction and all these different like negative things that have been um, impacting mostly and in many times communities of color and low-income people. But at the same time, it is something that I feel 
as interconnected beings, we are all impacted by it and we should care about it. This panel was also very uh, powerful. I mean, I can feel the power in my in my body as I'm talking. I'm still feeling the trembles from it. But I'm also feeling really hopeful and inspired to not only continue to do the work I personally do with audio pharmacy prescriptions, but also on a deeper level, like the internal work that needs to happen to shift so that I can continue to be open to different perspectives to really understand what is creating these walls that divide us internally as well as externally so we can truly break them down. I think that there are some fears that are really like valid, you know, and in order to address them, we need to hear about them and to or, and, and after hearing about them, finding solutions to heal it. We really need to work on healing. Part of the work that I've done personally with gratefulness to a lot of my indigenous like brothers and sisters from this land and in other places, including my own, I've learned how to connect with Mama Earth to be able to like go to her when I'm feeling like really stressed out and challenged to ask her to take from me that which is like making me feel overwhelmed and to to be able to like learn how to like find the power to continue to walk forward and do the work that needs to be done I think that it's important today for all of us to have that in clear sight the ability to heal and also the ability to walk forward in a way that allows us to see clearly and to to move forward in a way that brings people together So this certainly was an opportunity to bring people together and maybe the beginning of healing. So Audio Pharmacy, you're here with your crew. Can maybe one of the other people in your group can explain what Audio Pharmacy is about? Teal Sense here, Audio Pharmacy Tribe. Basically, Audio Pharmacy is a movement. It started with just our passion for music and um, consciousness and awareness. We started coming up with solutions and the music, the art, and the activism all combined has brought us together. There are no boundaries with colors of our skin. What we're also pushing for is, is change in the world where we all come together and connect through things, not, not just art and activism, but environmentalism. Climate change is relevant to what we do in most of our music. You were talking about just the importance of respecting Mother Earth, and and here we are at this panel about decolonization. And one of the things that we struggle with environmental filmmaking is that often the environmental movement is seen as a movement of privileged white people in this country, right, in America. And what did you take away from this panel that might help people understand why we need to talk about intersectionality and decolonization when we talk about saving the planet. I think that as an immigrant of this country, when we come here, many of us come with this idea of the American dream. And we are kind of like looking towards white culture to kind of like access that dream. And in the process of that, we don't recognize what is here you know, what is truly here. So I think that's the first thing, land acknowledgement and like the acknowledgement of indigenous peoples is very, very important. And that alone will take you so far in like your connection to this land. And then ultimately, in terms of environmentalism, the things that are happening like here specifically, you know, may not be exactly the same, but they do reflect a lot of the different issues happening in different environments all over the world. Climate change is impacting 
all communities. It might be in different like intensities, like people in the Pacific Islands, like my people, for example, are experiencing harsh impacts of climate change through like floods and storms and it's really shifting and changing the environment and it's causing a lot of not only like financial and institutional damage but mental health damage and that's not even being talked about. I think that it's important to address these communities first because they're impacted first and if our collaborators, our white allies are able to recognize what is happening on that level, it won't be just a ripple, it'll be like a bigger impact globally. The communities that consist mostly of people of color and impoverished people, they are the frontline communities that are going to be impacted first and so this is a social justice issue that we're talking about. I remember one of the things that someone said was that storytelling is the most powerful way to create relationship with other people, with people who are not like us. What you do through music and healing, how do you see storytelling having that impact? I feel very strongly that we need to redefine what culture is here in America. You know, I do believe that American values such as like, you know, individualism and independence. I think that's important. I think everyone should have that. But I think that's limiting. I think there's more to it. I think cooperation and collaboration is important. I think diversity is important. I think being able to value what's in the heart Really, like, coming together, and I know this is hard because America is diverse, and we also have a strong foundation in a, you know, keep it real, white supremacist ideals. And so to be able to, like, really shift that narrative, you know, and to be able to create values that are inclusive and show the strength in that inclusivity is what we need to, I feel, really work on because I think that's what's going to also help us in the bigger picture address the the, the the more challenging questions like our environment. We really do need to come together. I don't want to put like a ticking time bomb on it, but the reality is it's, it's happening and it's happening fast. You mentioned uh, shifting the narrative. The traditional conventional story of America is one of colonization. And now we're also looking more deeply at embracing slavery and the genocide as part of our story it's just it to me it's so simple how can you heal if you don't acknowledge the pain and hurt of people you know how do you heal as a person as a community as as a world and so these stories are super important and they might be hard to see and hear but you know what I feel honestly that we are very super powerful as human beings to transmute that negative energy into something inspiring and positive sometimes it feels overwhelming and sometimes I have to do things to really ground myself but it's important to do that because it keeps you conscious and it keeps you kind of like you just kind of know a little bit more like how to walk on this path you know, in the best way you can as a human being. I think that acknowledging those stories are important to the healing. And once we are be able to create like spaces where we can intersect and really heal as people, then I think that the solutions are going to be so apparent to us and we'll have the strength and we'll have like the passion and we'll have the camaraderie to be able to address the bigger picture. So we need to heal. I think the moderator commented that this is the first time that he's ever experienced such a powerful panel on diversity you know, here at Sundance. What do you think is the responsibility of festivals on this level to 
bring forth these stories and to address these issues on this global platform. I think as artists and filmmakers, it's our responsibility. That's what I think. And if you're not talking about this type of stuff, what are you talking about? And you, I mean, there's plenty of things to talk about, but I feel like at this time, this is what we need. And if you're not playing your part, what are you doing? I also think that this is a time where people need to kind of figure out where they're at, you know? Are you, you know, people always say, which side of history are you on? I think on a deeper level, like, where do you see this human community in, like, the next seven generations? What do you need to do to prepare not only yourself, but your children, their potential community, to be able to address these issues on a level that maybe we can't even do it? So it is important to tell these stories. We need to engage each other. We need to engage our youth. I, I really want to be hopeful. And, and it's a choice. And it's a choice because with that hope, I'm going to keep stepping towards that direction. Without your hope, we're not going nowhere. We got to move forward and we need to find ways to really bring our communities together and to heal and to help save this planet. <laughs> Inhale and exhale fire, temperature in the air gets higher, bright wings are to the clouds, climb into the rain and feel inspired, come down through the water, mother earth sees her daughter, make my way back to the ground, climb through the canal, go even farther. I wake up at dawn and I wonder what I'll do, I try to set positive intentions. After a long day of seeing films and musicians and talking to people on the street, we're finally back at our house. And I think one of the special magic things about Sundance is that you end up sharing a home often with other filmmakers. I had the pleasure of being a housemate to Ben Dupree, who's also a filmmaker. So why don't you tell me about your most recent film and also what your experience has been like so far this week at Sundance? Okay, sure. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to say a few things and share my ideas. I'm, I'm a Kavul tribal member of the Kavul Confederated Tribes, which is in Washington State. I've been coming to Sundance off and on for a very long time. I'm currently a Concordia artist in residence out of Los Angeles, which is Davis Guggenheim's company. I'm also a Firelight Media Fellow as an impact producer for this year. So the current film that I have is actually called Sweetheart Dancers, which is a short film about a two-spirit or gay Native American couple who's dancing in straight-only competitions across the country. And we're going to continue to share the film throughout the festival circuit. I'm in a strange incubation phase where I'm trying to reevaluate what I can do to be more efficient in helping other filmmakers in this new environment this seems to be like the year for documentaries. I feel like there's an explosion of new voices, new talent. We're going through a period of time where we're really reevaluating our lives through cinema and documentaries are really helping us shape our opinions about the world and how we're interpreting this new America. You know, it's, it's a very strange time to be alive. I have been a big supporter of the indigenous voices that come through Sundance, and I think that's where I fall in. I think if that's my niche, it's being around indigenous voices and helping that community 
realize their dreams as filmmakers. One of the things that I've learned since arriving here in Park City is that we're actually on Ute land. What does it mean for Sundance to be on Ute land? And what is the representation of the indigenous voices? Is it adequate? Sundance Film Festival is named after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was Robert Redford's film that he, he did a long time ago when he was younger. So he named the festival Sundance Film Festival. And in that film, they were on Ute land. This is the backdrop for which the Ute people have always lived. And from the inception of the festival, Robert Redford has gone out of his way to really help nurture the creative voices of Native people. And I think the Sundance program itself has evolved over the years, 20-something years, to include a lot of really amazing voices that people would know today. Uh, Taika Watiki, who directed Thor, Black Horse Loaf, Sterling Harjo, director Chris Arab Smoke Signals, producer Heather Ray. I mean, Sundance has always been a home for indigenous voices. I think sometimes they haven't done enough overall to let people who come to Sundance know that the Ute tribe is here and they're still present. And I don't know, I don't think that's anyone's fault. I think it just needs to be more calculated in the future and maybe have some more interactions between the people who attend the festival and the Ute tribe who has a lot of environmental issues on their plate this year, including the bear's ears, protecting bear's ears. I ran into a woman on Main Street who is holding up a sign that said, Justice for Willie Gray Eyes. And she brought up the issue of Bears Ears. Do you know anything about that story? To go back to the idea of these environmental campaigns, my background, that brought me back to the doc space with social justice filmmaking. And I believe that we're at both a really amazing time in filmmaking that we're able to document on the front lines of these environmental injustice movements. But we're also in a very particular time where people have curated their attention spans for what they want to represent. And so whether it be, you know, the fossil fuel extraction wars that happened on North Dakota for KXL and Standing Rock or Pipeline 3, which is in Minneapolis, or the Louisiana fight, or Bears Ears Monument, or whatever's happened in Apache Land. I mean, we can go on and on. These environmental issues, whether it's the extinction of, of our animals and resources, it's it's ongoing. And I think that's what finds me in this space with you today is knowing that I have these allyships with people like Wildlands and Running Wild Media and people that uh, really do care about the environment and about the issues of how to maintain the planet for the future. And that's why I think that as an indigenous filmmaker, I fit perfectly within this collective of people who want to make film to make change. It's not flippant. It's not for ourselves. It's for our children, you know, in the future. When we talk about reversing the damage that we've done as humans, a lot of the discussion is about supporting indigenous peoples. One very powerful way to do that is to raise exposure through filmmaking and storytelling. You really can't separate indigenous lifeways and lands from the people themselves, we still exist here. I think there was some crazy statistic like we represent 2% of the entire population of the world and 80% of the natural resources are still within our traditional domains and homelands. The desecration of our natural resources is also kind of the destruction of indigenous people as a whole. So we're tied to those, those movements and those fights. Whether we want to be political or not, we are directly affected, whether it be to our food sources, to the keystone species, to our land. We are inherently built into the system. 
there's a land grab and there's a grab for water and there's a grab for all of this through the destruction of capitalism that's just kind of wielding out of control it has been for hundreds of years so yeah i think we're in a ripe territory for collaborations and a space to build new films and new ideas and for me in particular i want it to be entertaining i think that the best way to reach the hearts and minds of the people is to by making something entertaining so that they understand and they also learn their lesson through tales and that's what native people do or storytellers you know, we, we find ways to make it creative and interesting. And hopefully that's the goal with making film is to inspire people to make change and learn their lessons like an old coyote tale, you know. When you say entertaining, what does that look like? What's your definition? A lot of pizza jokes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, laughter off the humor, you know, obviously you don't want to laugh at the tragedies that we're facing, but also having a sense of humor is the only way you can get through this immense sense of guilt and tragedy for what the world is going through. We have to live, we have to love, and we have to laugh about things. And and so making things entertaining while teaching lessons is, is kind of where I see my market. I'd love to know what your vision would be then next. How would you envision the world of filmmaking and storytelling that would be more inclusive with the indigenous voices? What does that look like for you? I think the last few years post Standing Rock, we had said to each other that we were going to develop a new model of approaching the media that was with allyships out of Hollywood and people who had resources to get us the camera gear, the opportunities to do the work at a high level. But I always said that in order for this to work, it has to be a bit of a movement through the relationships you build in the industry. So I have a basic system that I think will work in the next year to build capacity with young filmmakers. I'm starting to mentor more young directors and writers and getting grants for them so that they can produce some ideas. I'm building the coalitions with uh, people like Wildlands and Running Wild and also leveraging that with the relationships that I've built in Hollywood and people who believe in my creative visions and bringing those together in a space like Sundance allows for more synergy and so that these stories can continue to find themselves across the board. It doesn't all have to be distribution. It's more about movement building within the communities. So even though my film is about two gay Native American dancers, as I take them to the festivals across the country, we're going to partner with Native communities and coalitions that have interests on all kinds of platforms and leverage that to build some media presence out there and bring some money and attention to the issues that are important for those communities. It's a little bit of like a evolution of the, the grassroots movement where we're taking you know, corporate money, building stories, putting them in these festivals that are kind of known for having this commercial output and then building community around that for impact campaigns. And that's all a lot of systems and models that I've learned as the impact fellow producer at Firelight Media. And it's similar to what Brit Doc's Bertha Fund has done setting that stage and also what PBS and ITVS have developed over the years in terms of just how they're going to reach their communities and the community involvements and the screenings and the educational material. So we're trying to replicate that within a small Indian movement. So we'll see if it can catch fire. So by next year, what I hope is that we'll have the Ute tribe sitting front and center and being acknowledged not only for their land, but their people are welcome and that we'll have filmmakers with us who have films in the, in the festival and companies that are willing to come in and say, we understand what your concerns are. Let's not 
let theirs, theirs turn into Standing Rock. By the time it gets to the point where you have 10,000 people in physical altercations, you've already lost the battle because the real fight is in leveraging the administrations and getting the paperwork done and pushing so that the legal teams can actually make those stops. So we don't want to get to the point where people have to go to jail. And I think that that's kind of what we did learn from Standing Rock. Do the prep work ahead of time. Use the media as much as you can to leverage that, those voices and make capacity. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to add? It's been a really amazing experience at Sundance 2019. And I think that this festival is setting the stage for an amazing year in film. And look for the Sweetheart Dancers, which is going to be on the festival circuit. Instagram is Sweetheart Dancers 2019. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here at Eisen Conservation. So that wraps up my episode of Eyes on Conservation at Sundance. I'd like to thank Cassandra Begay of Pandos, Maikiko James of Women in Film, Poonam Basu and Esther Mira of Team Revolution, Tamara Katevska and Liuba Stefanov, directors of Honeyland, Juan Pablo Polanco and Cesar Alejandro Jaimes, directors of Lapu, Dan Madison Savage, director of Them That Follow, Gabe Dominguez, band leader of Shake Your Peace, Joe Cruz and Tio Sense of Audio Pharmacy, and finally Ben Dupree, director of Sweetheart Dancers. Tune in for more reportage of Sundance 2019 from Serena Simons as she interviews some of the filmmakers behind some of the most groundbreaking environmental films of this year's festival. To close this episode, you're listening to the music of Audio Pharmacy. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>